0: The purpose of this podcast is to help people understand what it's like for families to suddenly find themselves in the centre of the storm that surrounds you when a member of your family goes missing. One minute, they're there and life is normal. The next minute, they're gone and life will never be the same. Families are left to navigate these uncharted waters with little support, feeling overwhelmed with a sense of helplessness, worry, anxiety grief, and utter exhaustion. It's hoped that by speaking with families like the Levisons, things might change. Big things like laws that protect those who might be guilty, to small things like families worrying whether they'll get a seat in the courtroom for their own son's murder trial and coronial inquest because seats are taken up by court watchers, people who visit trials out of curiosity or even entertainment.
2: Court watchers, there's so many stories here. A court watcher is a person who attends the trials, the inquests. They're not directly involved in the inquests. They're just there for their own entertainment, enjoyment. Some it's a hobby. Uh, some are retired people. Some are younger people, different, different ages. And uh, we met some who were most respectful, polite, didn't get in the way, they were there for their, their reasons and, and they would leave and, and not be of a concern. And we met the other extreme, ones who were made pests of themselves, tried to ingratiate themselves into our lives and cause nothing but mayhem and heartache. One of them was at, um, when Atkins had his appeal against testifying, it was heard by Lisa McCallum in the Supreme Court, and uh, on the, when the hearing was being being held the first day, it was a very, very small court up at uh, the Supreme Court at King Street. And unfortunately, there wasn't much space in this court. And uh, Faye and I, at that stage, were separated from each other across the courtroom. I wasn't near Faye, and, but Faye was on the end of the bench with one of her friends. and
1: we uh, were lucky this, to get those seats because yeah. it was that small and there was a lot of court watchers there that day.
2: Yeah, taking up space for the family friends, police. Media. Media. These these cop watches are are taking space, and this one lady rushed in very late. We've since learned that she's a Lucy McCallum groupie, rushed into uh, where Faye was sitting, and uh, because Faye couldn't move. The bench was that full. And she literally threw herself against Faye, pushed Faye along the bench, which was quite shiny, so that she could squeeze in and and, and, uh, be sitting in the court.
1: Then a couple of minutes later, Lucy McCallum stand. Bangs the gavel down and court adjourned. She was only there for about three minutes. First out, zoom, she's out the door. She told me I could move across. I said, I've got no way. Yes, you can. You can move across. And she just pushed me across and sat down. That's very same lady at the inquest. It was a particularly busy day at the inquest. There was a lot of media and a lot of court watchers. And we were waiting at the door and she pushed herself in front of me to get in first. But few of my friends knew who she was and what she'd done. So they sort of kept her back so the family could go in.
2: It's pushed me to believe that there should be a um, seating priority in court where you have first in will be the, of the police and legal teams and court staff. Then number two, you'll have the family and friends of the, uh, of the victim. Of course, the media needs to be in there as well. And then if there's space, only if there's space, it's then open to the general public, these court watchers. But not before, because it's the last thing victims need is the pressure of, gee, I might get a seat in my own own son's murder trial or, or inquest. It shouldn't happen.
0: Gosh, to think that you've got to be conscious of that going into court each day on top of all of the other things is ludicrous. And we were just talking earlier off mic about the other types of characters that you've had to come across uh, That's again, have made it only harder. We don't need to use names but I think some of those examples are just give people an insight into the level of chaos that you have to then deal with on top of everything else.
1: Well, there's one, they ingratiated themselves into our, our lives through the inquest You know, they seemed very nice, they're there to support, but their only reason they were there, as it turned out, was so they could find out what was going on, leak it to the media, uh, make it all about themselves.
2: We found out the name dropped of their friends, you know, I know the Levisons. well, so what?
1: They actually were heard, there was two of them, actually heard saying that Mark and I could make money out of this. There there could be a book and a story and and a movie God, we don't want a movie or a, or a mini series and joking who'd play who. And that was very hurtful because that, that was demeaning our son's life. For us to get a, a PR, come on. We've never taken any money for anything, any, any of the interviews, stories we've done, even the book. That was just to get our story out there about Matt to warn people what sort of people are out in society. And they've brought it down to
0: money? No. The book Faye is talking about is called Deal with the Devil: The Death of Matthew Leveson and the 10-year search for the truth. When journalist Grace Tobin approached the Levesons about writing a book about Matt, they were happy to get the story out. Grace had covered the case for several years. She had first met Mark and Faye when the case had gone cold. She was working for 60 minutes and they did their first story on Matt's case. She then watched as the inquest happened, then the deal with the devil that followed. Unfortunately, the positive experience the Levisons had with Grace Tobin was in the minority. They have so many stories of others who were unscrupulous or people who wanted to get close to them simply so they could name drop. And so these are people that, I mean, initially you don't, you don't know their background and what the reasons are that they're there, and so you invite them along to, you know, lunch breaks during court sessions, and then eventually it got to a point where you had to cut ties. But exactly, what- and then
1: they then, then they sort of spit the dummy and become nasty and vindictive, and, and that I mean, there was one incident that was, oh, Melbourne Cup Day, and they wanted they wanted a lunch, they wanted to wear hats, and. You know, court won't sit the full day because it's Melbourne Cup Day. I'm sorry, but court does sit the full day and Melbourne Cup's meaningless. We're talking about my son's life, our son's life. Melbourne Cup means nothing, especially when you're going through something like that. You don't want to know about it. And nor
2: did the court. I mean, you know, there was not even a mention of the Melbourne Cup being, being run whilst we are in court. You know, we had business to do and that, that's why we are there in court. Yet some, they wanted to um, attend a function or to uh, you know, make a big thing of the cup day. It bore no meaning when you made inquest.
0: How did you suppress your your rage? I mean, just the thought of that is so infuriating that she would call you knowing you know you're going into court that day, despite it being Melbourne Cup, and wanting to talk about fascinators.
1: I could have screamed, I, I think if she wasn't at the other end of the phone, I would have slapped. It's just it was demeaning. I mean, that was the last thing from our mind, as I said to them, do what you want. It's just it was just horrible.
2: There was even one individual who who um, we thought quite kindly came down to the uh, the very first crime scene search. Who'd ingratiated themselves into our family. Who'd um, we divulged things to because they started to become closer, and brought down a magnificent bouquet of flowers for Faye. They were dressed in a uh, nice shirt and tie and, and, and suit pants and. Uh, We believe, you know, in hindsight, it was merely for, i hoping, I guess, for a photo op with the media because there was many, many cameras and press down there.
0: So, did you ever tell these people face to face, "Can you nick off? Like, it's not appropriate that you're here. You're not welcome." Or did you? I think we just awkward
2: emotions were all at the time. We were just too nice, too trusting.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, you've never dealt with anything like this before, so most people would find themselves in that kind of situation they've you know you're vulnerable they know it they're going to weasel their way in exactly um, they make a habit of it seemingly aside from mere insensitivity the problem with the court watchers who didn't behave was that their behavior could jeopardize the court proceedings on one occasion detective gary Jubilin had to step in
1: one of them, after the day in court, when Atkins was leaving court, they were heard. We were in, in, actually in, inside the court and the glass doors are opening and closing as people are coming and going. And one of them was heard yelling at Atkins as he walked past or drove walked past, I think it was. Gary had heard, heard them and he was going to say something. I said, oh, it'll be okay. Anyway, they kept going. So he pulled them aside unspanoans to us and gave them a a dressing down and they were just mortified and they never stopped talking about that after that how dare he treat me like that I didn't yell out we all heard we all heard in the court them yelling out which could could have affected things you don't know but they couldn't see it it was just all about them the whole thing became all about them To the extent where they had an outburst in court and when it raced out.
0: Unbelievable. What were they yelling out to Atkins?
1: I'm not sure. I can't remember what it
2: was. To me, I just thought it was more symbolic. They were looking for a photo with the press. I see no other reason other than that.
0: On another occasion in court, the Levisons saw some heavily armed police in the courtroom. While they can laugh now, when they found out why they were there, it was mortifying
2: know on the other extreme, yeah. You know, funny story from court, near the end when the coroner was going to hand down her finding, we just happened to glance around and see when we came into court that um, there was what appeared to be armed police in the back of the court wearing Kevlar vests and some kind of body armour and, and uh, tasers and batons and, uh, and I just happened to mention one of the police, why are those guys here? What's happening today? I said, they're for you in case you guys go berserk, which hands down are finding. They <laughs> said, we well, know you wouldn't, but that's just protocol. And
0: <laughs> Wow. Yes. That's
1: protocol. That was hurtful. <laughs> God, I laugh at it now, but <laughs> I was mortified. Absolutely we laughed. Well, mortified. What are
2: we going to do? But they were there. That was uh, – and, of course, they went with not cry, but uh, we behaved.
0: <laughs> for any families like the Levisons who have been caught up in something unthinkable – Getting publicity for the case is vital. First and foremost was that they needed to keep looking for Matt. Cases have momentum, and when that abates, sometimes the police attention dwindles. In the Levisons' case, so many things needed a public airing. Most importantly, Atkins was out there living in the community and by all accounts, picking up young men just like he had done with Matt people needed to know about him and be wary. Most people aren't used to media attention and it can feel like a catch-22. You need your case to become part of the public discourse, so you need to face the media, but then you've got to cop everything that comes with it. I'm really impressed with you guys for understanding the um, the power of publicity and, and the association with new events happening, even if the case isn't necessarily progressing, there are opportunities to generate more publicity through means of things like rewards and whatnot, Um, because it is a really powerful tool, obviously, for families in a predicament where they're looking for their loved one. How much do you think the success, as in the goal that you were able to achieve in the end, could be attributed to media and publicity? I think a
2: lot. A great deal because publicity makes the case more widely known and that also allows you to put more pressure on on authorities.
1: And sometimes it is hard to catch the media's attention. You've just got to keep at it because, as I said, with 60 and that, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have got as far as we did with the inquest. The same with a few of the other reporters along the way that put little stories in, in the paper. If it wasn't for them, we probably wouldn't be where we are today.
0: Well, let's carry on with um, the the theme of journos and the fact that you guys still have a relationship with, you know, people like Grace who've come into your lives over the years. Um, how did she enter into your sphere? What year was that?
2: I'm thinking 2000 and I'm just guessing. The inquest started December 15. It would have been probably late 14, early 15. Grace contacted me. I think it was via email. I think where she'd let me know that she was a researcher from 60 Minutes, had read about our our situation in a, another book, in a paragraph in, in Justine Ford's book, and um, wanted to uh, learn more as it could be a worthy, worthy story.
0: And at this point you had been approached by others who had considered writing a book on your behalf um, and you'd also had experiences with media where, you know, you spend hours of time and energy doing these filmings or interviews, whatever it is, for them to never see the light of day. So conscious of that, what made you sure or feel confident that Grace would actually follow through?
1: Once we met her, when we got the email, we thought, mm, here we go again. But once we got to speak to her, all those worries sort of just went out the window. She's a very genuine person.
2: Very sincere.
1: Very sincere. We just clicked. I, I think that's the only way you can say it. We clicked. And so we decided to trust her, and we did. And if it wasn't for 60 minutes, we've got to give them credit. We probably wouldn't have got it as far as we did. We'd been applying to GIFA, which is like the freedom of information, for our various things on our son's case. So and, many times. And each time we applied, we had to pay for it. And we always got knocked back. So when the inquest was coming up, they actually applied to get all the information on the ERISP, which was the electronic recording of his interview with the police, and we applied too. We got knocked back, but 60 Minutes got everything and more. So we've got to be grateful for them. Michael Usher did the first, first story on it. He was lovely. And then we went from there, and then the other story came out when we had to do the deal. Tara Brown did that one.
0: So Grace was along for that chapter. That would have been about two thousand and fourteen, right, right through right to, the, to the end. And what were the when you did um, agree to go along with this book project? Were there sort of parameters or certain arrangements that you agreed upon? Nothing was written. It
1: was all verbal.
0: Everything no, there
2: was one thing. We insisted on one item being being included, which is in the book at the end. That the fact that the Levisons have never taken any money for the book or any other media interview, I never will. To our way of thinking, any cent we ever took would be blood money. So we we cannot make money out of Matt's death.
0: And so, when it comes to things like the cover art and the actual contents of the book, were you given any sort of warning? Were you able to read the book before it went to print?
1: No, we got to read I think a first couple of paragraphs in the early days. We never got to read the book till just before it was launched. It had already been printed. That was a bit disappointing because we would have liked to be, had seen what went to, what was going to be put out there to the public because in it there is a few things that aren't quite right, which to us is hurtful and Grace by no means meant it to be hurtful to us. It wasn't done with malice. She hasn't got a malice bone in her body, but to us, They should have been corrected, but it's too late. So at least the bulk of the story is correct, but there is just some parts that aren't quite true.
2: See, the book is very, very good and mostly accurate, but it's through Grace's eyes. We've lived and breathed this for our lifetime, the last 10 years. Had we been able to proofread the transcript, we could have helped make that a little more fully complete and accurate.
0: Mark and Faye always believed that Atkins had done something to cause Matt's death. Gary Jubelin listened to Atkins' account of Matt overdosing and his shame that he was supposed to be the one who protected Matt and the shame of his mother finding out he was gay, and it rang true. The Levisons and Jubelin were never going to agree on this point, but that didn't mean an end to a long-held mutual respect. But in the hands of the media... These differing opinions make a story. People agree to be interviewed in order to get the story out, but ratings are always at the core of media. And people like the Levisons can be blindsided when a reporter hits them with a question that they're unprepared for. And then when it came to um, the 60 Minutes episode that included the decision was made to include Gary's opinion in that episode of 60 Minutes, did you feel like because you'd had this relationship that had been established over a long period of time, did you, was there ever a semblance of betrayal or? Yeah. that
1: When Tara came out and blindsided me with that question about Gary, like I respected Gary, which I do. I respect him. I went along with everything. Yes, I did. But Police sometimes have blinkers on. They get a a tunnel vision, they've got this motive and
0: they don't veer from it. Faye still suspects that her son was killed by Atkins, even though she acknowledges that there's no concrete proof that he was or that he wasn't. And he and I differ of how
1: Matt died. He's had 10 years to come up with that excuse that he OD'd. Why didn't he just come out and say that? Not now say, he OD'd, he found him dead, he was scared what his mother thought because she didn't know he was gay. That's a load of bullshit.
2: Even, as Faye said, there's no proof either way. We have strong suspicions and the coroner herself, coroner Truscott, in her findings, the cranial findings, mentions how she can't believe Atkins and the fact that his he's induced a statement which gives the location of Matt. The only testable fact in that statement is location of Matt remains. Without that one fact, he was charged with perjury and would have gone to prison.
0: And so when this is going, I mean, 60 Minutes has a massive reach and Gary Jubelin is very high profile, he's very highly regarded. And so when that component of his belief as to how Matt died is included in this episode that you're probably only learning as you watch it because, of course, there's lots of editing that happens before something goes to air. Did you feel, was there worry about the fact that the public, the viewing public, would then change their minds too?
1: Oh, yeah. That I've sleepless nights over that. I'd worried that they'd turn, that they'd consider Matt just a a druggo, and I thought that his brothers have got to live with that as well. And then when that, that question Tara did put to us, she said, oh, will be balanced, you know, we've got, we've got to show both sides of the story, the, the coin, more or less. But when the, when it did go to air, he had the last, Gary had the last say and that was hurtful.
2: Now, keep in mind too, this is from, and we mentioned before Gary being highly regarded by us as well, no doubt about yeah. that, but he's not right all the time.
1: He knew. He knew what he was doing. He had ten years to come up with the story, and he knew that the longer that Matt stayed in the ground, the less evidence there would be to convict
0: him. One aspect of the process the Levisons found difficult and have since been very vocal about is the reward system. Initially, the reward for information leading to Matt's discovery or a conviction in Matt's disappearance was only one thousand dollars. Hardly incentive for anyone to come forward. The Levisons fought hard to get that increased to $100,000, but it took years. They had told the inquest that it was demeaning to have to beg the government to increase the reward for Matt from $100,000 to $250,000. They asked the coroner to make a recommendation that $1 million should be the standard reward for information leading to the arrest of an offender for every unsolved suspicious death. The coroner declined, but did note a recent announcement that suggested the $1 million reward had been adopted in some cold cases. For the Levisons, the importance of the amount of the reward was always to see what information it would flush out. When the reward was increased, they assumed the police would monitor Atkins' phone and movements,
2: We fought for three three years to get a reward from Matt. When Matt was first missing, he had a reward for a thousand dollars. I didn't miss say it one thousand dollars. That's all it was. And then we fought for years and years. And uh, HVS she lost an application for the reward. So we did our souls, and I hand delivered it to the police commissioner's office at Maroochydore at that stage. Michael Daly was then police commissioner, uh, police minister. I hand the reward personally to his office, so I knew they had it. And we get the thousand bucks, a hundred thousand dollars. So we again at the press conference at you know, the police media center, we go in there and I got the, um, the police minister, uh, Michael Gallagher, the police media person, Faye and I. And uh, you know, the effort we've gone to get this reward of a hundred thousand bucks, I said, So you're watching Atkins today to see who he calls or who calls him or if he meets the body after this reward gets announced? Oh no. Oh, I understand, it's operational, you, you can't say. No, 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 we're not doing anything. That was it, you fucking incompetent, you fucking fool. And I, I let loose the mess of that. So he's, he's shaking his head, he couldn't believe it. All if effort, they were doing nothing. Doing nothing. Another opportunity lost. Did anybody call him up? No, We don't know, no we will ever know. He wasn't being checked. Maybe no one, maybe some.
0: And that's what lies at the heart of the matter. Even though rewards are rarely claimed, it's more about the publicity they generate. But for families, the reward also reflects the worth placed on their loved one. And the hard thing is, it's the families who have to push for it. Just one more battle on top of the immeasurable grief and torment. People who are living with indescribable trauma who have no training or experience with this kind of thing, suddenly find themselves having to write letters to ministers and navigate a whole other process. It's a steep learning curve, and with all their hard-earned expertise, Mark and Faye use it to help others. Our
2: goal was this hassle and, and heartache and stress to apply for reward, get knocked back, apply, get knocked back. Why does the victim need all that hassle and stress? Which is automatic. This is the crime, that's the reward, bang.
0: It's common sense, isn't it? The Levisons shouldn't have had to battle with the powers that be to increase the reward for Matt. If it was automatic, that's just one less thing families have to worry about. The Levisons spent precious time and energy, even during Matt's inquest, but to no avail.
2: We applied again later on for... Uh, do you have it increased from 100 to 200 before the inquest started? We're well, getting more publicity, might get you know, more interest in the case, and who knows? And um, Gary said to me the first day of inquest, oh, I pity about the reward. I said, What do you mean, pity about the reward? He said, Well, you got knocked back? Haven't you been told? I said, No. The no bastard's called me. I said, Nothing. So we, we rang the police. No, we, rang, we, we wrote a nasty email of complaint to the police commissioner. Said you know the fact that's not not bad. No, you've had at least to tell us. And then we got a response. Oh, I'm sorry, didn't fit the premise. There wasn't increase, so we had to cop that. And in the second crime scene search, at the smaller crime scene where Matt wasn't found, there was a lot of media interest in that case. A lot of it. So I was in that chair one night, and I wrote a, um, a letter to the police minister asking for two fifty, asking for more than two. I asked for more than the first time, and we applauded. That they gave Tyrrell a million. We said, but we want about two fifty.
1: That. Million for Tyrrell came about three weeks after we'd got knocked back, and we were actually down in Melbourne at the time because it was our wedding anniversary. And Gary phoned us to warn us. Before was
2: public, because he knew how happening.
1: I felt about yeah. it. We felt about it. Poor Gary had to tell me that Tyrrell was getting a million dollars. So I was grateful that he was getting it was a million. Good. Yeah. But why is Matt's life not worth a million? Mm. Why did he get back on 200000 I don't care if the person's one day old or 101. All their lives matter, matter and they should be treated equally.
0: Understanding the power of publicity, Mark wrote a letter to the police minister and posted it to his Twitter page. The results were immediate.
2: And I put it on my Twitter page, linked link to it there. So all, all the, the press would follow me. Uh, and a lot of interest to the second dig. So uh, it's at 10.45pm. The next day at 3pm, the phone rings. And I, I, answer, I answer block calls because it could be the police or, or press. So we answer the block calls that come in as well. And um, this man says, is that Mark Levison? I said, yeah.
0: A subsequent police minister had called to tell the Levisons the reward was to be increased to $250,000 and that they wanted to find Matt. It had taken 17 hours from the time of Mark's post.
1: Then the next minute he's on Ben Fordham show up here. Yeah, we support Leveson's. We're, we're supporting them, we're, getting, we're giving them 250. I thought, you rotten sod.
2: And on the reward issue, many say rewards don't work. Well, give them their credit, they mightn't work, but and not many get paid out, that's quite true as well. But so what? Make the reward five million. You know, if it doesn't get paid out, it doesn't matter, it's publicity.
0: When Matt's remains were discovered, it took a couple of days to sift the soil to make sure everything that could be recovered was. Then there was a long process of investigation with the various forensic experts called in to examine them. While the Levisons had seen the excavation at the burial site, it was important to them to pay their respects once Matt's remains had been processed.
2: Yeah, because the first thing is Matt's taken away, which is very upsetting to find in what we call pizza boxes. Matt's excavated by forensic, I think they're archaeologists, they could have been, and, and you know, they were talking paintbrushes and yeah, uh, you know, he finally removed his from his the crime experience. scene. And, uh, his skeleton was uh, disassembled and taken away. There was some missing bones. That We got back about 9% of Matt, we think, from the crime scene. We went in to say our goodbyes to Matt at the morgue and Matt was assembled. You've seen the photograph online, and, and that photo, although personal... We wanted to publish that photo, hence we showed it to the press, and the reason being, we wanted the world to see what this bastard had done to our son.
0: Publicly displaying images of Matt's skeleton was not a decision the Levison family made lightly, but they figured that the impact of the image would speak for itself. They figured, if a picture tells a thousand words, this one told the story of what their beautiful son had been reduced to by the man who was supposed to have loved him. That decision to, to show that
1: we didn't take take that lightly, we discussed it, and yes, we were, no, we weren't, and then we thought he needs to see, and I thought that he would see it. I thought he was going to be in in the court, which she turned out he wasn't, and that was all aimed at him, mainly. But I just wanted the world to see what he had done and, to us, and son be warned, and be warned that this is what. He's capable of doing. So also, too,
2: it's important for everybody to note as well that uh, when Matt was found, he was found about eight centimeters down—not a very deep grave, but deep enough—and but face up. That's important. No coverings, face up. You think about that. Atkins buries him and throws dirt on
1: his dead face. He dropped him. He admitted. That he dropped him on the on the way to putting him in the ground.
2: He left Matt's body in the car whilst he was digging the grave and didn't drag him out until the grave was switched size to put him in it. Yeah, just, just lay him in that or throw him in that and just not cover him and throw dirt in his face. That's something you know, I I can't reconcile.
1: Maddie didn't want to be buried. Uh, Maddie wanted he didn't want to be, funny thing a kid to talk about. <laughs> he wanted his his body donated to science he was a donor
2: wow
1: um well uh, like for uh, what organ the, donor oh, oh, yes. organ yeah. donor sorry yeah. organ donor and he always said he didn't want to be buried in the ground for the worms to crawl through him Oh, god so um actually he's, he's over there in the corner and
2: those tiny bears. Ah, uh, so
0: he had him cremated L-
1: listen to yeah. it. that's yeah. what he wanted yeah he wanted to be cremated and because he'd been out in the coal for so long. The boys wanted him home and we wanted him home. So
0: oh wow, so you did really bring him home. he's really? brought
2: him yeah. home. He's <laughs> in this room.
0: Oh gosh, that's amazing. On the day before Matt's funeral, the Levisons decided to take a drive with their dear friend Rob from Grafton to the memorial that had sprung up in the Royal National Park where he was found. They arrived to see the memorial had been desecrated. Mark posted on Twitter. Absolutely devastated. The night before Maddie's funeral, we visited his memorial tree in the National Park to find it vandalised. Butterflies taken, gifts taken, memorial plaques taken, fresh flowers taken. Nothing is left.
2: We've gone down there. It's a pretty spot. It's pretty. Weird, Matt is, It's just quiet. You hear the birds singing. You hear the the, the wind rattle through the trees. Uh, it, it's peaceful there. On a hot day, it's nice and cool. Usually,
1: get some butterflies down there, or the kookaburra will come in and sit on the tree.
0: Is that comforting to know yeah. that he was in such yeah. a peaceful place? Well,
2: yeah. You yeah. talk about kindness as well. We even had a phone call from the national park staff, and that was found May, in the May. I think it was the in the December that same for year. His I'm pretty birthday. sure. Yeah, for his birthday. They they. Said so we need to because this has been really turned into a moonscape where they've dug up, they're going to replant some trees down there. And we thought we'd do it on Matt's birthday. They knew his birthday, and they said, Do you guys want to come down? We'll have morning tea and a cup of coffee down there. So we did, we helped them to plant the trees and they put up some deer mesh around the trees so that we get eaten. And uh, and those trees, most are all still, still growing, they're still strongly.
1: growing, yeah. I oh. think they'll was a black box of, oh, I'm not black sure what they Bocs, were, I forget now what they are, but yeah. So they're Gosh. still growing there, and the, the, it's finally taken off. There's a lot of uh, new vegetation now. Cause we I mean, just now,
2: it's taken so long to get just start to grow again, but it's happening right now.
1: But the the day of Matt's funeral, and we're getting down there, as we get closer, there's no flowers, no nothing. Somebody had stripped it. Took everything away,
2: all the memorial posters and cards. Cleaned and it up, trees. and Look, they there was scattered. nothing there. They were they were gone. They were just cleaned up. They don't know who, why, national parks. There's no no way that we'd do it. It Definitely wasn't them. So they, they checked their staff. It wasn't any of us. So we don't know who's done it or or why. But it was just clinging to a bare tree stump or bare tree tree
1: trunk. There was a couple of comments on Facebook that that we we already had. Maddie back, and we didn't need two trees. And then people started saying, Well, that's a horrible thing to say. So, got a feeling who did it. We just can't prove it.
0: Human Um, beings are just can be awful. (laughs) How did you feel in that moment when you get there and you've got Rob there with you?
1: Devastated. What? What? The day before the funeral. It was there. It was there, and not flowers there. And it was a few, because. On his birthday and his anniversary and Christmas time, if I can get them, I get the multicoloured roses, the rainbow roses. And there was about three petals that they'd left behind. That's all that was left. And once we
2: made known that the site had been decimated, it took only a couple of days. And you should have seen the flowers that were put back there for like others' other yeah, people's
1: own. really lovely. Mm.
0: And since then it's been? It's been, been
1: yeah. Touch wood, yeah, Touch yes, wood, yeah. Light. Yeah. Okay. okay.
0: And so you feel like that—that that is so to you. Matt is there. That's well, his that's, place. That's a go-to place. Well, yeah. he's still got
1: part of him still down there somewhere. So yeah, that's that's his spot. Mm. That's where he was for nearly ten years. So. Well, yeah, and
0: all of the nutrients that he gave all the plants around, yeah. and that—that that is a very special yeah. place. Yeah. And I'm so glad that it's um, a peaceful experience for you now, and a lovely spot. what it sounds like. Oh, it really is. On Friday the 9th of March 2018, around 300 people attended Matt's funeral. Guests were encouraged to wear Matt's favourite colour, purple. The coffin holding his remains was covered in a buoyant display of bright pink, yellow, orange and purple flowers. The Levisons played a slideshow of photos of Matt during his life, and the final photograph was one taken before Matt's remains had been discovered, of the cabbage palm under which he was buried. For her book, writer Grace Tobin chose some beautiful excerpts from words spoken by family and friends during the service. Mark said, "'Today we can do what we set out to do. "'We can give our Maddie the proper send-off he so justly deserves "'in front of his family and his friends.'" Family and friends who have stood by us and Maddie during this long journey. Today is about Maddie, and yeah, wouldn't he love all of this attention too? We're here to give thanks to Maddie for allowing us to have him in our lives for the 20 years that we had. Faye said, Maddie was a happy baby, full of mischief. We just wish now that you didn't go through your camera-shy period of not letting us take your photo. You had the most cheeky glint in your eyes, with a huge smile and gorgeous dimples. Matt's best friend Rachel said, I feel very privileged to have known Maddie, to call him my best friend and my other half, to have spent as many wonderful years with him as I did. I know I wouldn't be the person I am today if it wasn't for Maddie. He's given me so many happy moments and memories in life that I'll treasure forever." And three friends of Matt's described his exuberance and joy at the nightclubs. Maddie's energy was so infectious and he always turned heads in the club, being the little hottie he was. Like most gay boys back then, the shorts were short, the singlets were skin tight, the tan and the bronzer was orange and our hair was straightened as flat as possible. We thought we were so classy. Everybody was drawn to Maddie. He was young, charismatic, beautiful, and always had that huge smile on his face. And in their eulogies, his friends and loved ones managed to capture the very essence of Matthew Levison: Fun, mischievous, charismatic, and beautiful, and always with a huge smile on his face. The loss of such a spirit made the world seem a little less bright for everyone. On the next episode of Maddie.
1: People do genuinely care after you've been through so much heartache.
2: A sound, a smell, a sight will trigger a memory. It can occur anytime, anywhere.
1: In the dark moments when you go to sleep, that comes flooding back to you.